0: goals fundamentally need to consist of three things. And I think this is the kind of the first principles of goal setting. You need a why, you need a what, and you need a how. Those are the three legs of the stool in terms of successful goal setting. OKRs, just by definition, objectives are the what and key results are the how, and the why is actually not in the framework. And so a lot of companies put OKRs into place without that context that has a really clear definition of the why and then they wonder why they don't work. It's because they've got two legs of a three-legged stool, and so things fall over. So narratives, commitments, and tasks is a way of defining goals that puts really clear emphasis on the three elements.
1: Welcome to Product with Benash. I'm Axel, and in this show, I talk to product leaders and experienced operators across Europe and beyond. Together, we'll learn about their craft, how they build successful products, and unpack the frameworks and secrets they've used in delivering growth for their businesses. You might not do this, but I've been trying to get Ravi on the show for a while, and I'm thrilled to have him on today and share his experience with the European product community. Hi, Ravi. Welcome to Product
0: with Panache. Hi, Axel. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited for the conversation.
1: My pleasure. I've been following your work over the past couple of years and really love the content you've put out there about product strategy, decision making, leadership. I'm really excited to hear more about your experience and excited to share this with the wider product community as well. And for many new product people, you need no introduction, right? Having said that, I know I wouldn't do as good a job introducing you. So why don't you please introduce yourself for our listeners who might not know you already?
0: Yeah, that sounds good. So my name is Ravi Mehta. I've been a product manager and a product leader throughout my entire career. I started getting into technology when I was really young. My dad brought home an Apple computer, one of the early Apple computers when I was a kid. And there wasn't much to do on it other than a couple of simple games and to learn how to program. And so from a very early age, I learned how to program and just fell in love with building products. And that's something that has been throughout my entire career, something that I've enjoyed doing and something that I've really devoted myself to doing. My first role after college was at Microsoft, where I was one of the early members of the Xbox team. So I worked on Xbox Live. I worked on some of the massively multiplayer content for Xbox. I spent about six years there working in various parts of multiplayer gaming. And that really kicked off another common thread throughout my career. The first one being a product focus. The second one being I focused a lot on consumer social what are products that everyday people use to connect to each other and not necessarily pure play social networking but things like how do you create really great online game experiences your know, trip advisor is a product most people don't think of as typically social but it's all about the reviews and opinions of other travelers and so i've held roles throughout my career that have been really focused on that so Microsoft, I focused on online gaming. I then, after graduating from business school, I joined Brian Balfour, who's now the CEO of Reforge at his first startup. And we're doing some really interesting work around microtransactions and early mobile and social games. From there, I went to TripAdvisor, where I was the head of consumer product. From there, I went to Facebook, where I focused on a team that was really focused on Gen Z and understanding what's happening with younger users and why are social media behaviors and habits changing and what can Facebook do about that for its blue products, which are Facebook and Messenger. From there, I was the chief product officer at Tinder. And then for the past couple of years, I've been taking a different route entirely. So I spent about a year and a half working with Reforge, focused on helping them build the product leadership program and helping them launch the product strategy So I spent a lot of time doing thinking about what does it mean to be a really great product manager and product leader and helping people level up. And for me, that was something that I wanted to continue to do. And so I knew I wanted to do something earlier stage, I was looking for the right idea. And as I was spending time at Reforged talking to Reforged members, I saw a pretty common problem, which is the fact that many people feel like there's more resources than ever to learn how to level up their skills. But being successful as a professional is both a combination of hard skills as well as soft skills. And the best way that I've found in terms of leveling up your soft skills is to work with a one-on-one coach. And so I started to look at that space and a little bit more and ask myself, can you make one-on-one coaching more scalable than it is today? And that's when I teamed up with my co-founders and decided to start Outpace. And our goal is to democratize access to elite one-on-one coaching. So for people who are in the middle of their career, that have never had access to coaching before because it's either difficult to find coaches or it's too expensive. We wanna make it much more accessible through a combination of working with really great coaches as well well as building a product and content experience that enables people to access coaching at a much lower price point. We see this as a theme that's happening within products today where you've got interesting experiences like Noom on the nutrition side, Headspace and Calm on the meditation side future on the personal training side, talk space and better help on the therapy side, all making it much easier for people to connect one-on-one with a provider in a way that it wasn't possible where those one-on-one relationships would be prohibitively expensive or prohibitively difficult.
1: Thank you. Thanks for sharing the context. That's super insightful. I'm really interested to also learn about and clarify what type of people are the right audience for Outbase, right? At what at which point in their career should a product person be looking up for your services?
0: Yeah, I tend to think of careers in three acts. And if you think about a career, there's gonna be more than three phases, but you can roughly break it into three phases. So the first act of a person's career is really about establishment. It's about figuring out what you wanna do, committing yourself to that, starting to learn how to be a really high performer in that area. And oftentimes the thing that really separates the people who are successful in their career path from people who are less, are the hard skills that they're gonna learn. Can they master the things that make them a great craftsperson? In our case, we're looking at people that are in fields like product management, marketing, engineering, sales, things like that. So that first act of a person's career is really important from a formative standpoint. And there's lots of great ways to level up when you're in that first act of your career. The third act of your career is you've been successful, you've gotten promoted, you're now managing a large team, you're in a role that's a senior leadership or executive role. The problems that you're going to be facing day to day are very much bespoke to the business you're in, the teams that you're leading, and a great way to level up when you're in that act three of your career as an executive is with executive coaching. And there's this really interesting resources on both sides. For us, the perfect customer is the person that's in the middle. So they're in the act two of their career where they're in. The formative phase from the standpoint of there's an inflection point between do they kind of stay roughly where they are or are they able to accelerate their career and move into that third act where they're in a senior leadership uh, or executive position. And the things that are necessary for a person to really level up at that phase is a combination of some of the hard skills that made you successful in that first act of your career, but also some of the soft skills that are important to succeeding as an executive. And knowing that what got you to where you are today as a high performing professional won't necessarily get to where you want to go in terms of seniority or becoming a founder or things like that is something a lot of people understand, but they're not sure how to navigate that. And so the ideal person for Outpace is someone who's looking to work with a coach to help them through that second act of their career so that they can get to where they want to go however they define it which might be an executive role within a larger company it might be starting their own company it might be really honing honing their craft in certain ways so that's we commonly just refer to that person as like a mid-career professional who's been a high performer who's at this really interesting inflection point within their career
1: that makes a lot of sense thank you it would be great actually to talk about the importance of training and coaching especially as i see a lot of product leaders in the european product community not dedicating enough time to this what's your view on how product leaders balance their time between strategy management and coaching
0: yeah and i think this is true for people in the us market as well there's some more resources in the us market but it's a common it's a common problem it's interesting i've worked with both people in europe as well as the us and there's some there's some distinctions but largely the challenges are very similar i think it's a that's one of the the things that's really an important shift is when you start as a product manager, a lot of your focus is on execution. And ultimately, your ability to succeed within a product management role is very correlated with your ability to drive impact in the product. As you get more and more senior, A higher ratio of your time needs to be spent on a number of things, but two principal things. The first one being managing up so that people understand what you're building and so that you're winning the support that you need to to succeed. And then the second is on um, just general communication, your presence within your organization, your ability to connect the dots to help people across the organization really bring disparate directions together into a single aligned Direction. And as a person gets more and more senior, that ratio of communication work to hands-on product work continues to get more and more tilted towards the communication side to the point where a senior product leader or a product executive is probably spending the majority of their time communicating and the minority of their time reviewing specs, working closely with the product team on the product details. And as a shorthand, I like to say that early in your career, your job as a product manager is to build the product as you become a manager, your job is to build the teams that build the product. And as you become an executive, your job is to build the systems that build the teams that build the product. And so that's an interesting way of thinking about how the role changes as you become more senior.
1: Thank you. That's super insightful. Part of that role of being a product leader, I know you've written a lot about this, is about giving clarity and providing direction, but also Creating the environment where your team is going to perform. So we talk a lot about performance. Certainly at, at Outpace, I'm sure you're really focused on how you help individuals and teams really work on their performance. One of the topics I wanted to touch on is actually quite in season because it's the start of the year. So a lot of product teams and product leaders are working on planning. In Q4 already last year, I've seen a lot of people reach out and ask about product strategy and goal setting. I know you've written about both these topics before. Can you please give us a quick overview of, first of all, what you call the product strategy stack? And I think I'll have a bunch of follow-up questions on that.
0: Yeah, definitely. The product strategy stack is a concept that I worked with Reforged to put out there. You can Google product strategy stack and access the article. And it's a way of thinking about these terms that typically get conflated, like strategy and goals and missions, into kind of a jumbled mess. It's a way of thinking about those and separating them into really distinct concrete concepts that have clear relationships between those concepts so that you can, as a PM or a product leader, be much more deliberate about how you define strategy and then be much more deliberate about how you debug whether or not you're making progress on strategy. So the product strategy stack consists of five layers. The top layer is company mission, which is a really aspirational definition of what is your company trying to achieve in the world? So what value is it trying to create for customers? Next is company strategy, which is what is the rigorously logical plan that your company has in place in order to achieve its mission in the world? The third layer, which is really the connective tissue between two things is product strategy. And so product strategy is the connection between what are you trying to accomplish as a company, which is your company mission and your company strategy. And two, what are the day-to-day activities of the product team? So what's the roadmap? What are the goals that the product team is working against? So product strategy is the third layer. The fourth layer is product roadmap. So, what are the specific things that are on your roadmap that you're going to build in order to move the product strategy forward and move your company forward as a result? And then the fifth layer is product goals. So, how do you define quantitatively or qualitatively the things that you want to see to know whether or not you're making progress on your roadmap, your product strategy, and ultimately your company strategy and mission? And so, all five of those components work together. You can Define strategy working top down through the stack. So start with company mission, then you know what is the strategy you're going to use for that mission, then the product strategy, which is what are the what is the strategy role that the product is going to play, then product roadmap, which is what are you actually going to build within the product to achieve that strategy, then the product goals, which is to measure whether or not you're making progress. And then you can work bottoms up to understand whether or not you're making Um, progress on your strategy. So you start with your goals to see whether or not you're hitting the right goals. If you are or you're not, that helps you understand your roadmap. So if you're not hitting your right goals, you might not have the right roadmap. If you don't have the right roadmap, it might be because your product strategy isn't clearly defined. If you don't have the right product strategy, it it might be because you don't understand how your product fits within the company strategy. And if your company strategy is not working, it might be because you haven't defined the mission really well. And The product strategy stack basically gives two ways to interface with defining and debugging your strategy.
1: Thank you. I like the fact you answered one of the questions I was going to have, because it's a really common question. A lot of product leaders, especially first-time heads of product, ask how much of this conversation is top-down versus bottom-up, and who do you involve in the organization? And you've already given a couple of tips as to how to have this conversation at each layer of the stack, so thank you for that. And I also realize, and I've picked, also picked this up from your intervention in Lenny's podcast, you don't mention vision, right? Why is that?
0: So a lot of frameworks have the idea of mission and vision being two separate things. And in Lenny's podcast, we talked a little bit about the different definitions. I've never quite been able to wrap my head around what that distinction is and how they relate to each other. And then even if I can, I don't really see that it's helpful to to create sort of two different statements. And oftentimes companies get really focused on the minutia of defining like, what's our vision? What's our mission? No, that's not a vision. No, that's not a mission. Or that's the mission instead of the vision. And all of that to me feels like a distraction, which is for me, like the vision as is commonly defined is like, what is the world that you as a company see? And then your mission is what is the role that your company is going to play in that world? I think you can fuse those together. So a vision of what the world looks like is not important unless it's an active vision. And the active part of the vision is what is the mission that the company is going to play. And so I think it's just easier to sort of take that, fuse it together into one statement, which is aspirationally, emotionally, what do you want to accomplish as the company? Necessarily as part of defining that vision or defining that mission, it's going to have some context for it which is going to be the vision of the world and it feels like kind of one element rather than rather than two distinct elements
1: it also simplifies the stack, right it provides it with like more legibility which is great like i mentioned before it's the start of the year right and a lot of product leads are probably struggling with planning and okrs for this quarter and for the year this is one of the topics i wanted to go a little bit deeper on in this episode some of the common challenges I hear about goals across the companies of various sizes, development stage and sectors are things like the goals often come without a believable plan or they are unreasonable to begin with, or they're not stable through time. They're changing like every so often. You can't track progress against them. They are not consistent across teams and departments. So I feel like while most people are using OKRs in their organizations, there's like this, this, and I know you've written about this and you've worked around building the NCT framework. It would be great for us to talk a little bit about NCT and how it can help as an alternative to OKRs or maybe to complement OKRs. And if you have a couple of examples of what that looks like, that'd be great.
0: Yeah. That sounds good. So this is a pretty common problem I've experienced myself as well as teams that I've talked through over the years have experienced. There's almost no team I've talked to that's been able to implement OKRs without some challenge and without some iteration on that. I think there's two reasons for that. One is like goal setting is a skill and no team is going to be great at it at the gate. And as with any skill, as you accumulate reps, you get better at it. You know, that's just part of goal setting and you can make OKRs work, you can make NCTs work, you can make another goal setting framework work. As long as like your f- kind of first principle is to understand that, you know, it's going to take time. You need to develop a habit around it. You'll get better as you get more reps. And it's better not to thrash on your goal setting framework as you're getting those reps in. It's a little bit like exercising. You don't keep changing the exercise if you're not getting the results that you want, you you increase the number of reps. The second thing I think is that OKRs, it's a very general purpose framework. It's defined for goal setting in any context, whether or not it's a team or whether or not it's an individual, and it requires a particular context to work well. So John Doerr has a really good TED talk about OKRs where he talks about that goals fundamentally need to consist of three things. And I think this is the the first principles of goal setting. You need a why, you need a what, and you need a how. And those are the three legs of the stool in terms of successful goal setting. OKRs, just by definition, objectives are the what and key results are the how. And the why is actually not in the framework. And he talks about this within the TED Talk, because within the organizations where OKRs have been successful, like Google, there's some other context that dictates The why. And so a lot of companies put OKRs into place without that context that has a really clear definition of the why. And then they wonder why they don't work. It's because they've got two legs of a three legged stool. And so things fall over. So narratives, commitments, and tasks is a way of defining goals that puts really clear emphasis on the three elements. The narrative is the why, it's a strategic narrative of. What are you trying to achieve and why are you trying to achieve that? Narrative being a really important part of that because it's not just a one-line statement. It's a narrative that anyone within the organization can really understand and understand the story behind that particular set of goals or objectives.
1: Do you feel stuck not knowing how to tackle a problem? Are you looking for a solution to help your team members grow in their craft? Either way, check out panache.io. Panache works with product leaders to bring expert insights and proven frameworks you can use to truly deliver impact in your role. Companies like Atlassian, Content Square and Miracle all choose Panache to provide the right level of training and coaching for their product teams so they can perform at their best. Whether you're a product leader or an individual contributor, head to panache.io, book a seat to one of our many programs and raise your product game today check out panash.io. That's panas dot
0: Commitments are the what. So it's the, what are you going to do in order to achieve that strategic narrative? The word commitment is used very explicitly instead of goal, because when people hear the word goal, objective, key result, they tend to reduce that down into some quantifiable number, and we're going to improve revenue by 5%, or we're going to improve retention by 5%. Very purposely, the idea with commitment is that we're making a commitment of something that we're pretty convinced that we can achieve, and that doesn't necessarily need to be, a number. It could be that our commitment is to ship something, or it could be that our commitment is to do some research and deliver that as some learnings. And the idea of a commitment moves people away from thinking that the only type of valid goal is an outcome. Sometimes outputs are better goals than outcomes, and I can talk a little bit more about that. And then the third piece are the tasks, and the tasks are the how. And rightfully, I think a lot of goal setting frameworks including OKRs say the tasks should largely be up to the team. To figure out and so they should have a lot of autonomy and the point of a quarter is not to t- check off tasks it's to deliver on goals i completely agree with both of those things but i think what often happens with teams that are setting up okrs is they'll have objectives they'll have key results but they won't have actually figured out how they're going to meet those and so they start the quarter with a cold start and as a result they're scrambling during the first part of the quarter to figure out okay we have this really lofty key result that we're supposed to hit. Now, how do we go about doing it? And then they start to do a lot of of work on the how. So the narratives, commitments, and tasks really provides a way for product teams to have all three elements, the why, the what, and the how, carefully designed before they go into the quarter so that the team can start work on the things that are going to be really meaningful in terms of their progress as soon as the quarter starts.
1: Great. Thank you for that. I'm really happy you mentioned actually one of the key challenges I also observe, I will call this traditional goal setting just because it's the most widely used, OKRs or the most widely used framework out there, is that it can leave teams with no idea on how to actually deliver on the outcomes. In the best cases, they have clarity on outcome goals but they don't really have a map or clear idea of the path to get... And I know you have worked on different goal types based on development stage, where the teams are at in terms of maturity and on the product they're working on and how it offers also a framework for progress because part of the goal setting framework is also the team's ability to measure their progress against some of the goals they've set. Can you talk to to some of that?
0: Yeah, so I think that there's this... There's just things that's happened in the tech industry where there's a lot of focus on outcomes. Leaders want their teams to be outcome oriented. Companies want their teams to deliver outcomes for the business. Ultimately, like investors want companies to drive outcomes. And so there's this really significant and valid focus on we need to goal the team on outcomes. And I ultimately think that's an important part of being a product manager. Your job as a product manager is not to ship features It's to deliver outcomes. But sometimes the best way to reach an outcome is not to focus on the outcome itself. I really there's a book called The Score Takes Care of Itself, and it's all about football and a famous coach within football who gold his team not on winning a Super Bowl, but on the really micro things of what does it take to play the game? What does it take in terms of the, the footwork involved, the different plays involved? And his whole thing was that it's the outputs that ultimately drive the outcomes. And we need to focus on delivering the outputs really well. We need to focus on flawless execution. And for product teams, I think there's a similar dynamic in the sense that it's not always the case that going on outputs is better or going on outcomes is better than outputs, because sometimes the team doesn't understand how to achieve the outcome. And if the team doesn't know how to achieve the outcome, let's say the goal is to move retention by 10%. Then very quickly in the quarter, the team will realize that they don't actually understand how to move this. They'll just start throwing spaghetti against the wall. And then it becomes a game of chance in terms of whether or not the team hits their goals. And that's a very disempowering thing because ultimately the team doesn't know whether or not it's going to be able to achieve its goals when the quarter starts. And it really gets in the way of a learning loop. If instead the team says, what is our frontier of understanding? What do we know? And what do we not know? And what's the furthest thing that we should goal ourselves? that's on the interface between what we know and what we don't know? And if a team sets the goal based on that idea, then they continue to move that frontier forward. And so sometimes the team knows how to move a goal like retention or revenue, and then they should set an outcome-based goal like that. And then they should move that metrics forward. But sometimes the team doesn't know. They don't know what are the levers that drive a particular goal, in which case, the team should goal itself on discovery. So identifying the specific levers. It might be that a team doesn't know whether or not they have sufficient resources or the right resources to execute. In that case, they should goal themselves based on dependency risk it might not it might be that the team knows they have a good hypothesis for what moves the metrics they know that they have all the resources that they need but they don't know whether or not they can execute flawlessly with those resources in which case they should goal themselves on execution and ultimately if a team has a hypothesis of what moves the metrics has the resources it needs has proven to execute then it makes sense to goal based on the outcome so pms can think about a ladder of risk in terms of understanding risk, dependency risk, execution risk, and then ultimately strategic risk and then define their goal based on that ladder based on their understanding of where they are today and ultimately they can move progressively up that ladder as they gain the things that they need to really move the metric.
1: Thank you that was super clear. I will put the link to the ReForge article in the show notes so people can overlay this conversation on top of that article. You there's a great table that talks about different goal types and in which context to actually use them. So thanks for that. If that's okay with you, let's move on to the career topic. I've got a bunch of questions for you. How can some of the high performers out there that we mentioned earlier, how can they basically optimize for their careers? So in your past couple of roles, I'm really interested to know when you were hiring senior product managers or heads of product, what are the main traits or competencies you'd hire for and why?
0: So I published on my blog, it's a set of 12 competencies of product managers. And that actually forms the baseline for what I will typically look for with some dependencies based on the type of role. So there's 12 competencies. I won't go through all of them right now, but they're broken into four areas. So the first area is product execution. The second area is customer insight. The third area is product strategy. And then the fourth area is influencing people or leadership. And it's very possible within a typical interview loop to be able to assess a person on all four of those categories. And you can also customize those categories based on the specific role that you're looking for. It might be based on the seniority of the role. It might be on the domain that the person is in. And that way of thinking about assessing a candidate is similar to some other published frameworks about... Um, how companies hire. So Facebook, for example, has three areas that they look for, product sense, execution, leadership, and drive. And those roughly map to those four areas as well, with execution being a combination of customer insight and some of the strategic and roadmap thinking that a person would need. So that's ultimately what I look for. I like to use that competency framework as a way to create a clear view of what we're looking for, filtered through what the job description specifically is, but also tied back to those core competencies. Because ultimately, I think when you hire someone, regardless of the level that you hire them at, it's important to hire someone who's an athlete who's going to be able to grow and evolve with the company and who's not necessarily going to have one specific role that they can do and only do that. I think product is a very dynamic role and it requires someone that can be dynamic within the role and within the context of the company in order to be successful long-term.
1: So high adaptability.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Another question, I think it's related to this and a different way of looking at hiring and what are some of the maybe discriminating factors that really impact your decision-making when you didn't hire someone who otherwise were great, what were they lacking?
0: I think if you know, in cases where you have someone who's really great, who you decide not to hire, in some cases, it might be that there's domain expertise that you really need. And that person doesn't have the domain expertise. I think in other cases, it's a matter of they may not have had the right set of experiences, or they might not have. One thing I think is important is they might not have shown enough passion or interest in the specific problem Mm -hmm. that you're solving. I think ultimately, although that's not part of that foundational set of competencies, that's orthogonal and really important. PM is going to have to work really hard on behalf of customers to create value for them. And if the person lacks the passion for the value that the product creates or the customers that they are providing value for, it's going to be an uphill battle for them to be really successful in the role. And so oftentimes I think that's the case. And then I know know, a lot of people are looking for new roles right now. I think it's really important as you think about your career to also be kind to yourself and to also put things in proper perspective. Oftentimes, if you're really qualified for a role and you didn't get it, it has nothing to do with you. There are there might be other factors at play, there's other candidates, and there's a variety of things that are both external and internal that result in whether or not a person is able to get a role or succeed in a role And ultimately, you can only focus on what you can change internally, and you can't focus on some of the external things. And hiring, unfortunately, just has some of those external dynamics, which make it partly a game of skill, but also partly a game of chance.
1: So for folks out there, don't beat yourself too much about it. And yeah, keep a positive outlook. I'm going to touch on a couple of things from your past of your time at Tinder, and then also... um, some of the work you're doing at Outpace. What would you say was the biggest challenge you had to solve for at Tinder, and how did you navigate that? And I'm also asking the question, I suppose, in the light of what we talked about in terms of coaching and mentoring, etc. For people like yourself, and this is a conversation I've had with other product leaders, chief product officers in other companies, where they, at some point, when they're putting coaching in place for their teams, and sometimes it's outsourced coaching or external coaching they think, I wish I'd have the same level of support because there's this idea that coaching is not for the leaders sometimes. I'd love to hear about, yeah, what was the biggest
0: challenge you had to solve for at Tinder and how did you navigate that? I think the biggest problem to solve for at Tinder, which is also true of a lot of successful companies, is technology is a domain that just continues to evolve. People's preferences and behaviors continue to evolve. And so you can't stand. And what worked yesterday for the product may not work in the future. And we see that in the history of digital products, there's just a constant turning over between companies that have been successful and companies that are no longer successful. And the companies that have stayed at the top for a long period of time are really not afraid to cannibalize themselves and to create something Net new that leaves their old business in the past and really invests in the new business. And one of the hardest things to do in a successful company is to, when all the signs are pointing in the right direction, when everything's going up, revenue is increasing, to say, let's take a step back and let's understand where things are going, not over the next quarter or couple of quarters, but where things are going over the five years and understand whether or not we're making enough of an investment. And that is a question that is profound in its breadth. It's a question of culture, right? Culturally, people have to be willing to accept that there's a different way of thinking about things. It's a question of strategy. You have to understand strategically what's happening in the market from a competitive standpoint, and wh- as well as where technology is going. It's a question of leadership because you have to win people to this new way of thinking. It's a question of Customer insight and underlying customer understanding, because you have to understand what's changing for the customers and how is that going to evolve over time. It's a question of execution because you need to be able to execute on that new strategy. And then it's also a question of discipline because ultimately, in order to move from an old successful strategy to a new successful strategy, it often means cannibalizing the business and going through a particularly tough phase where growth might slow down for a little while. Because you're optimizing for global growth instead of local growth, and that is something that I spent a lot of time on at Tinder. Is thinking about where does Tinder go from here? It's something that I've spent time on in other places throughout my career, and it's one of the most challenging things because it really does ne- it, it necessitates effectiveness across a wide range of skills, from individual concerns about what the product is going to do to leadership and shaping culture and things of that sort.
1: As you were navigating this very broad, actually challenge. Did you have people you could rely on, get advice from? How is that for you? One of the reasons why I'm asking this question is that a lot of product leaders out there think they need to solve this problem on their own. And like, they're not allowed to have coaching because they're like so high up the hierarchy of their organizations. How did you navigate this? Did you have help from outside like
0: mentoring? Yeah, I think a few different ways. One is I think it's really important to spend time building relationships with people internal to the company so that you understand all of the different players involved and you could try to solve for what they need. And you can also try to have a team of mentors that you can turn to. I think it's really important as well to have external coaching. There's all the relationships that a person has professionally are pressurized in some way right? If it's someone on your team, you may not want to share too much with them for fear that you might make them feel like things are unstable or you might disrupt sort of the work that they're doing. If you don't have the answers, you might not want to tell your manager that in really detail because you might not want them to feel like you don't have the answers. Same thing with other senior executives. Stakeholders might be looking to the product team for answers. And if you don't have them, that might impact the relationship. So pretty much every relationship you have within an organization has some backdrop to it, which necessitates that you need to think about how you engage with that in a way that isn't completely vulnerable. Whereas with your coach, that's one relationship that you can have that's not pressurized in any way. And so as a result, you can go to your coach if you have no idea what's going on and say, I have no idea what's going on. I need some help thinking through this. And their job is to help you make progress on that not to judge you or not to add pressure uh this element of
1: psychological safety as well right
0: absolutely and so that's incredibly important to have especially i think for anyone throughout their career that's one of the reasons that we started outpace we wanted to bring those relationships to more people because they're important for professional success they're also important for personal wellness we spend a lot of our time at work our feeling of Whether or not we're succeeding at work is going to impact us both at work and at home. And so having someone that you can rely on who's a sounding board can help you make the progress that you need, achieve the success that you need, and can also make you feel heard when you're in an environment where you might not be able to share as authentically as you want to with the other people that are around you.
1: Thank you. What would you say is your biggest challenge right now at OutPix and how are you navigating that?
0: Yeah, so we're, it's interesting because it's so different than working within a large organization. Our challenge right now is we spent a lot of our first year focused on product discovery. So understanding what does it mean to scale coaching? And one of the key things that we wanted to do is we wanted to do more than just scale the match. There's a number of companies that are, we're going to have a network of coaches that are more affordable and more accessible. And we're going to enable anyone to match with a coach but then they step out of that relationship and just let that relationship proceed as it normally would. The challenge is, especially for someone that's never had a coach before, understanding how to make the most out of that relationship can often be a process in and of itself. And so we wanted to understand how can we productize the coaching relationship to make it both more efficient and more effective for people. And so we spent a lot of our early product discovery on answering that question. And so now we're moving out of that. We have a beta version of our product that's been built that we've got our first few beta users going through. We are iterating on that, really getting things locked in so that we can do a public launch. So a lot of the things that we're focused on day-to-day are very execution focused. At the same time, like the strategy decisions that you make within an early company are something that will last for a long time. And so we've been spending some time thinking about our strategy and, and how we want that strategy to unfold over the next couple of years, particularly in light of some of the advances within AI. We've been we started the company knowing that AI would play a really critical role in what we're doing. But the rate at which we've seen advances, particularly around large language models like GPT, has enabled us to look at it and say, actually, we can move much more quickly on this. And we look at AI as a way not to replace the coach, but to really amplify. The coach, And so we're putting AI tools in the hands of the coach to enable them to deliver better advice more quickly and more efficiently. So that's something that we've accelerated and that's something where we want to make sure we've got the right strategic orientation, which is guiding our day to day execution. That's really key. Another thing that's really key, given our stage is just raising and runway and all that sort of stuff. So we're having conversations with investors for our seed round. So those are the types of things that we're focused on. Making sure we have the right umbrella strategy executing really well against that and making sure that we have the right resources and investment and partners to grow at the pace that we want to.
1: Brilliant. Before we wrap up, I've got the question from the community actually, and it's uh, I think it's quite contextual. So someone from the community is asked, how do you keep the motivation going within the team when there has been no major business achievements, especially now when global outlook for economy is very uncertain, how do you ensure that your product strategy survives the test of time?
0: Yeah. So I think the first thing is to recognize that strategy is dynamic. The fact that your strategy is changing is not a bad thing. And yes, there's a sunk cost there. There's There may even be some grieving there in terms of we had a direction that we thought was going to be the right one. That doesn't look like it's going to be the right one anymore. And changing can be a, a painful process, both professionally and just just personally, just emotionally, given how much has imbe- in, been invested in there. But it's important to change, right? The companies that are the ones that are able to adapt their strategy are the ones that will do the best in this new environment. So I think that's the first thing is saying it's okay for our strategy to change, push that away as like a sunk cost in terms of what you spent and rethink it based on the world as it exists today. AI is a really good example. There's a lot of companies that have not thought about building their business with AI as a really key piece of it. And there are some businesses where it's not a key piece, and so you don't need to adapt. But there's a lot of businesses where it's going to have a pretty significant impact. And if your competitors are going to adopt it, and they can create a more valuable product for customers as a result, then either adapt to that new environment, or you're going to have to deal with the consequences. So the first thing I think is recognizing that it's okay to to change strategy, and that it's a dynamic thing. The second thing I think is it's important to be really open with people. Ultimately, especially at smaller companies, ones on the same boat together. You're growing in the same direction. In a really tough economic time, everyone knows it's a tough economic time. You can't shield people from it by denying that it is, but you can help people feel empowered in that situation by sharing the fact that you're in this new environment and that you're thinking and you would love their thoughts about how to navigate the environment. That's a way to keep people motivated. People's motivation is often... A, of how empowered they feel. And if they feel in the dark, they're going to feel disempowered. But if they feel like leadership is being transparent with them and that they're part of the process of navigating these difficult difficult times ahead, then they're going to feel more empowered and they're going to feel more motivated as a result. And then I think the third thing is direct. I'm old enough now that I've been through three major bubbles. Each time people said this is the end, like there was no, there was nothing here. In the web 1.0 bubble, it was really like was this internet thing even that useful or were we deluding ourselves that people would shop online. In 2008 crisis, similar conversations and now I think there's a lot of people talking about the existential is the technology boom over and are we not going to make out of it make it out of this and is technology going to reset into a mature business. And my feeling is no, it's not. It's just only accelerating. It has accelerated for a long time. It's going to continue to accelerate. We're already seeing accelerating trends in technologies like AI, and that's going to continue to go forward. We're not going into a tech dark age. We're just at a tough time that's probably going to last 12 to 18 months. And then we're going to get back back to growth and back to, I think, a lot of optimism around the growth.
1: Thank you. Before we wrap up, I'd like to ask our guests a couple of questions. This is my favorite segment of the show. What have been the top resources and/or catalysts you've had in your career? Could be anything. Could be meeting someone, reading an article, a book, taking a training course, mentoring, whatever.
0: For me, the top catalyst was my time at TripAdvisor. I was I worked for an incredibly great product leader, Adam Medros. The CEO of the company, Steve Coffer, is a brilliant leader. The company was at a really interesting moment. It had just been rolled out of Expedia and was a newly public company that could do a lot of things strategically that it couldn't necessarily as part of Expedia. And Steve and the leadership team at the company had just done such a good job of building a business that was able to recognize what customers want really quickly and move on those things. And I had a lot of opportunity when I was there. And so it was a really a formative part of my career. Even today at a startup, I go back to lessons that I learned at TripAdvisor every single day from really hard and specific lessons around how do you approach SEO to more soft lessons about how do you move really fast? What exactly does that mean? And I think if you look at really successful careers, you'll often see within a person's career, a moment when it might've been like a two or five year, five year period where they experienced a lot of growth because they were in an environment that was just a really good match for where they were at that point in their career and they were able to take a lot from that environment. And I felt felt that way from TripAdvisor. It was really an inflection point in my career, my understanding of product, my understanding of companies.
1: Amazing. Thank you. Now imagine you you were stranded on a desert, sorry, let me do this again. Imagine you're stranded on a desert island and you could be granted two specific wishes. Number one, an endless supply of one specific dish. What would that dish be? And then number two, one book you could take with you, what would that book be?
0: Yeah, I think in terms of dish, I love Lebanese food. I don't know why. I'm Indian by culture, but always love Lebanese food. My whole family loves Lebanese food, so I think chicken shawarma or shishtawuk or something like that would be the dish that I would that I would have for forevermore. I think I would live a happy life, and then. The second thing, the book, it's a new book. I haven't finished it yet, but it's really interesting is it's called The Creative Act and it's by Rick Rubin, who's a famous music producer. And it's a really different book. It's not so much a how-to manual. It's like in terms of its thoughts. He's got like poetry and almost like lyrics mixed in at particular points, but it's a really like deep contemplation on what it means to be creative. And I feel like if you're on a deserted island with nothing but your, but yourself, how to be creative and how to exist in that is really important. So that's a book I would take with me. Brilliant.
1: I don't Very think inspiring. a product
0: management book is going to be that interesting <laughs> on a deserted island. So I would take that so.
1: I wasn't expecting you to share a product <laughs> management book, so thank you. Last question. What advice would you give your early career self?
0: Yeah, I would give myself this advice. I would give everyone this advice, which is to really focus on building compounding assets in your career. Time is a wonderful thing in that it, just the way that a lot of things work, it makes things bigger and more impactful. And there's the kind of classic career thing, which is you look for a great job, you go and you do a great job at that job, you get promoted, and then you go to your next job. And your compounding asset is track record of experience and your most recent title and your most recent comp. But the problem is you're not actually taking a lot of your experiences from one role to another and that compounding asset that you have in terms of title and comp is pretty fragile especially in terms of where careers are going. And so I've looked at other folks who've done a really good job of building a personal brand and they have their compounding asset is their audience, their writing, the people that go to them for thought leadership and you see the value of that over time and it's more exponential than the value of your latest title and your latest comp. And so it doesn't have to be that, but my earlier self would, others, it's a business. You might start a business that just continues to grow. It might be $5,000 the first year and 10 years later, you're doing millions of dollars in revenue. If you're in your twenties, my guidance would be, and if I were in my twenties and I was giving myself guidance, would be define for yourself, what are the compounding assets that you want to build that are yours that you will own for the next 30 years? And that won't be your job. It will be something else.
1: Brilliant. Thank you so much Ravi for being with us today. I really enjoyed our conversation and yeah, good luck with everything you're doing at our pace. And yeah, I hope we can chat too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation.
1: If you're hearing this, you've listened to this episode all the way. And for that, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You can subscribe to the show on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google podcasts, or your favorite platform. Also, if you have a minute, please consider giving us a rating as it helps other listeners find the show. You can find all the episodes and resources on panache.io podcast. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O slash podcast.